charge you. I am going to give you a command. And then he gives an explanation as to the power of this command. This is a very important command, Timothy, that I'm about to give you. Uh, Paul's about to lay another very heavy command on Timothy. And he needs to pay attention. Now, this word uh, charge is uh, its one we've looked at before. It's parangelo. It means to command with force. It's a military term. This is an order, Timothy. You better pay attention. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, let's back up. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when, when I went to Macedonia, that thou mightst charge some. Give this important command. Charge some that they might teach no other doctrine. We saw it in chapter 4, verse 11. These things command and teach. Uh, we saw it in chapter 5 and verse 7. These things give in charge that they may be blameless. These are charges. This is an order. This can't be questioned. It's a very stir sternest kind of command in the Greek language. When Paul uses this kind of language, he's really leaning on his own authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I, an apostle of Jesus Christ, am commanding you, my subordinate Timothy, do what I'm about to tell you. It's as if Paul's grabbing Timothy by the shoulders and you need to pay attention here, Timothy. Wake up. That's what he's doing. Don't you see how important this is, Timothy? And as if that weren't enough, I mean, the, actually, the idea of taking somebody by the shoulders and shaking them as you're telling them something, as if that weren't enough, Paul then adds four more means of emphasizing this command in this verse. You and I might read it, and it's, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, and before Pontius Pilate, it, and we read right through it, and it sounds nice. But he gives four emphases on the importance of this command. The first and the most obvious one is that this command comes in the sight of God. Timothy, I'm commanding you before God. I'm calling God in as my witness that I am telling you to do this. The Greek word is enopion. We've seen it before. Paul's emphasizing to Timothy that he, Paul, in writing this, and Timothy, in reading this letter, are both doing so in the presence of Almighty God. By the way, you and I are as well. We hadn't ought to just breeze through, and that's a, boy, that's a nice verse to read. Uh, we ought to be paying attention to every single word. We ought to do that with every aspect of God's word, but that's another thing. God and all of heaven are witnesses to this exchange that's going on between Paul and Timothy and between Paul and you and I this morning. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? That ought to make you read your Bible a little bit differently, hadn't it? I mean, I've told you before, the first thing I do, I wake up, I come get dressed, I come downstairs, I grab a cup of coffee, I sit down with my Bible. That's, I do the same thing. I'm a boring person. I do the exact same thing every single morning. And it's easy for me to, uh, I'm reading my Bible just because that's what I do at the same time every single morning. At 4.15, every morning I read my Bible. But when I sit and realize it, it's not just me and my coffee reading the Bible. It's me in the presence of God. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? 
it would do me well to keep that in mind as I'm reading my copy. I don't. I don't every single day. But, see, Timothy had better not take this lightly. And neither should you or I. The second thing, the God who acts as a witness to this exchange is the same God who quickeneth all things. Did you see that? I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things. That's the God we're talking about here, Timothy. Now that phrase takes on even more meaning uh, next time when we get to verse 16. Let's, let's steal my own thunder. Let's jump down to verse 16. He says, Who only hath immortality. That's quickening, if ever there was quickening. That's immortal life. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. We'll talk about that next time. I'm not talking about it right now. But that's the kind of quickening we're talking about, is immortality. This is a God who has immortality in his hands and offers it to you and I. That's who we're talking about here. We're talking about a God who controls eternal life. Anything in this creation which has life has it because God gave it to them. Paul's mentioned this fact many, many times. It's kind of a pet concept with Paul. If you read through all of Paul's writings, you see that. And God who gave a life, God who quickens, God who brings life. Paul uses all these different phrases. Since he is a living God, he is also the God of the living as well, isn't he? Have you ever considered that? Just as Jesus pointed out. So Paul wants Timothy to grasp the scope of this concept. You and I might not see it quite as clearly in 21st century America, but this kind of language mocks the language of how Roman emperors describe themselves. Roman emperors describe themselves as the upholders of their subjects' lives. They upheld everybody's lives. Well, we're talking about God who gives everything life, even that emperor. He only has life because God gave it to him. Paul's kind of mocking that kind of language here. You don't see it so much if you're just reading the King James English and we're not in the, the first century mindset. But the emperor would declare himself as the upholder of life, while God is the one who gave him life. But it, Paul adds a third thing to emphasize this. He says this is before Christ Jesus as well. It's before God, the one who quickeneth all things, and it's before Christ Jesus. Now, in the sight of Jesus, I hope you realize when he says this that he's putting Jesus on the same level as God himself, isn't he? Jesus is on the same level with God himself, no matter what our Jehovah's Witness friends may say. We're not talking about some generic one-size-fits-all God either that Paul's talking about here. This is the one true God. The God who gives life to all things and represented himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? But there's a fourth incentive to obey. 
that Paul gives. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Jesus Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Jesus Christ himself, before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession. Jesus is an example of exactly what Timothy himself will need to do. Now, remember from last week that Paul has called Timothy to profess a good profession, right? Let's, uh, let's back up, verse 12. Let's read what we looked at last week. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Timothy, you're supposed to profess a good profession before many witnesses, just like Jesus Christ professed a good profession before Pontius Pilate. You see the scope of what we're talking about here? See, Paul calls Timothy to remember something, that Jesus is more than just a storybook character. Jesus stood trial before a real Roman governor who ruled Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, ten-year rule, that he was the governor of the uh, territory of Judea, and Pontius Pilate presided over Jesus' execution. We all know that. We read the story. But do we really consider this is a real event? This was a real execution that really happened before a real Roman governor. These are real events. At the time of Paul's writing, Pontius Pilate was probably still alive. He went on to life after Jesus. I mean, we know him from the, the little bit that we read in the book of John about uh, Jesus' trial, and we don't think anything. He went on to do other things after that. In fact, we have some copies of letters that he wrote. There's a, I have belief that we're going to see Pontius Pilate in heaven. I believe he got saved based on letters that he wrote after the fact. I'll let you look into that on your own. But in any case, he went on to do other things in government. Just like uh, Joe Biden's been uh, senator for longer than I've been alive, now he's president. These people do tasks, and they, politicians stay in politics forever until they shrivel up and blow away. Pontius Pilate was the same. He was a governor of Judea. He went on and did other things. He's still alive at the time of Paul's writing right now. This is a real person. These are real events. And sometimes we forget that. and We start to spiritualize things. And that removes some of the urgency. When we spiritualize God's word, it removes the urgency, doesn't it? When we don't keep it in a real life focus. See, Jesus' life and trial was a real event. It happened in real time. It's not just a spiritual story like most other religions have to offer. If you look at Buddhism, if you look at Hinduism, if you look at Shintoism, any, anything else, even uh, Islam, you look at any other religion, they offer nice spiritual stories, things to guide your life by, and some of them may be moral stories. But ours is based on real life. Real people, real Jesus, real Pontius Pilate, it's based in reality. 
That's something that's different than anybody else in the world. So let's look at this uh, profession that Jesus made. Let's turn to Luke chapter 23. Verse 3, just, it's going to be brief. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. You're right, that's me. That's the profession that Jesus said before the most powerful human being Jesus ever met. You ever think about that? Pontius Pilate was the most prominent person Jesus ever met. The governor of the, the Roman governor of the territory of Judea stands right there. Yep, king of the Jews, that's me. He did that at great peril to his own life. In fact, it did cost him his life. Among other things. Now in Ephesus put it back and focus on Timothy. Timothy has the exact same opportunity, doesn't he? To state exactly who he knows Jesus to be as well. Possibly under threat for his own life. And you know what? You and I have the opportunity to do the exact same thing. Who is Jesus? I'll tell you who Jesus is. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to talk about that next time. I've got that opportunity, maybe not under threat of my life yet. Other people around the world do make that same testimony under threat of their life. When I'm driving here every Sunday morning, I can hear the Voice of the Martyrs broadcast, and I can hear about different people who are doing so under a threat to their life every single Sunday morning. It's one of the things I enjoy as my drive in here. Just about the time when I turn on to Route 12. It's when that comes on every single Sunday. Paul is making a parallel between Jesus standing before a hostile magistrate and Timothy bearing witness before an equally hostile crowd as well. Now, as we mentioned in the beginning, verse 13 is really just setting the stage for the command that we're about to look at in verse 14. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession. Paul's about to give this command, and he's appealing to God the Father and his courageous, confessing son, Jesus. And he wants to make sure that Timothy gets the significance of everything that's going on here. This is not a command. I, this command I'm about to give you, Timothy, is not something to be taken lightly. So then, verse 14 is the command that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a summary command. And what I mean by that, this is a summary command of all the commands that we've seen so far in the book of 1 Timothy. Everything we've talked about so far, Timothy, that's what I need you to hold to, true to. And as we look, out, look at it, I need to point out 
that the combination of keep, tereo, and command, entole, shows up about a dozen times in the New Testament. Keep, command, keep, command, keep, command. We see it about a dozen times in the New Testament. But this is the only time that Paul uses it in all of his writing. I think that's significant. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and Paul only uses this here. Keep this command. Tereo and tole. He uses entole, command, about, uh, about 13 times in his other writings, but he never pairs it with tereo. This is a very unusual sense of terms. This is very specific, and I don't think that would be lost on Timothy. Now, as Timothy is well aware, Paul has very special apostolic authority and calling, right? I mean, Paul introduced himself to Timothy as if Timothy didn't know who it was. Uh, right at the beginning, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. So Timothy's well aware that Paul's an apostle that he has a special authority, a special calling. And he calls, Paul calls on those qualifications here, in a sense, as he's giving a very specific command to Timothy. And as we've already mentioned, this is the very sternest kind of command that Paul's giving. And we saw some of that in verse 12 last time as we were talking about fight the good fight of faith, make a good profession. But here... Paul seems to be speaking more to the dozen or so other commands that we've seen throughout the book. And this command here seems to encompass everything that we've looked at so far. And he says that you're supposed to keep all those commands. There's about a dozen of them. You're supposed to keep all those without spot. Without spot. Now that is a very important theme in other New Testament books as well. We see keeping things without spot throughout the New Testament. One that comes to mind right off the bat for me is in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 27. Which says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's, pure, that's part of the command for pure religion and undefiled before God. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And let's look at a, you know, a little bit different angle. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 27. talking about uh, Christ and the church. We're right in the middle of a section on Christ and the church. Christ's desire for his church. He says, 
verse 27, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Did you know that that spotless condition is only possible through faith in Christ Jesus? who in his death, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, that's what 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 19 says, he himself was without blemish and without spot, and that's the only grounds that I can ever be without blemish or without spot. I told you this, without spot is a major, major theme in the New Testament. We didn't look at all of them. I just pulled out some prime examples to show you how important this is. In 2 Peter, the uh, opposite form of the same Greek word is seen. Let, let's take a look at the opposite form. Uh, 2 Peter, chapter 3. Again, we were just there. Uh, I mean, uh, 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 13. It says, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. It's describing wickedness. They're people who haven't kept themselves spotless. So that's the opposite. They are spots, spilloi in the Greek. Now, I've taught you over and over, uh, when you want to make a statement about something, a descriptive statement, it can be one form. When you want to make its opposite, what do you do in Greek? You add an A to it. Just like gnosko, to know, agnosko, agnostic, to not know. Here, spilloi is to be spotted. What do you suppose to not be spotted is? Aspilloi. Very good. Aspilos. To be spotless. That's the word we've looked at all over. That means to be blameless. Uh, that means to be spotless. To be blameless is anapolemptos. We've already talked about that. I don't know if you noticed, but pile, right in the middle of it, is the heart of spot. Spiloi. Anapolemptos. We've seen that as a qualification for a bishop in the church, as well as a good characteristic for every single believer in the church of Ephesus. We saw that in chapter 5 and verse 7 of uh, 1 Timothy. By the way, why do I beat this so hard? Because these are the only places that this particular word is used. We've just covered all of them. This is the only places. So again... Paul is using very specific language here to get his point across. You and I may not pick that up if we're only reading the English. Uh, we don't realize that this is the only place. So how long should, keep, uh, should Timothy keep up this effort? Okay, he's supposed to have this effort to be spotless and blameless. How long? Oops, I lost First uh, Timothy. I've got to turn back to 1 Timothy and see how long. Bottom of verse 14. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Only that long, Timothy. After that, you can stop. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So before we finish up, and we're finishing up now, let's talk a little bit about this appearing of Jesus Christ. The word appearing here is a very interesting one. It's a very unique one. It's a form of the Greek word epiphania. Epiphania. You've heard the term epiphany, right? That's where we get it from, epiphania. That may not mean too much to you, but to myself, and probably to Brother Fisher, that has some interest. Because usually, when we're talking about Christ's return in the New Testament, the Greek word is parousia. Isn't that right? Parousia. Epiphania is a totally different understanding. It's not speaking of Christ's victorious return so much as the fact of simply being in His presence again. An epiphany, a glorious presence. Much more personal feel, isn't it? It's speaking of a dazzling brilliance and glory in a tangible glory so magnificent you can touch it. That's what epiphany is talking about. Almost a visible, tangible appearance. Maybe that's a minor detail, but I think it's worth noting. We're not talking about it's the same return. Christ is going to come back as conquering king. He's going to set things to right, and he's going to rule for a thousand years on the throne of David. Boy, I was expecting a stronger amen than that. Uh, he is doing that. But what Paul's talking about here is a epiphania, just the glory, the dazzling brilliance of being in the presence of Jesus Christ once again. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. You need to keep yourself spotless because one day we're going to be in the dazzling brilliance of our Lord. That's the importance of our being spotless and blameless in this dirty, filthy world that's around us. See, we need to be ready to welcome Christ back as a glorious but familiar person that we know Him as. Not so much the conquering King, which He also is, but first and foremost as our glorious Savior. Are you looking forward to that day? Are you keeping yourself spotless and blameless until then? I hope so. You mind if I close in a word of prayer? Lord, we do thank you for the stern warnings that you give sometimes.